Psalm 16, a mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy ones see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, as we continue our study of the Psalms uh, this morning, as you just heard, we come to Psalm 16, which if you were uh, paying attention there at the beginning, begins with a shout, but it's not the kind of shout that we'd maybe like to shout ourselves. In other words, it's not a shout of joy, it's not a shout of praise, it's not a shout in which the psalmist is just so happy with the way that his life is going that he can't contain himself, and so he cries out to God and says, Lord, thank you, or bless you, or he doesn't do that. It's a cry of distress, it's a shout of despair, it's, it's a cry that God might literally preserve his life. And yet, here's what I want to do with this psalm. I want to use it to encourage you today. I think it's an encouraging psalm, and I think it's an encouraging psalm, particularly if, frankly, that's the kind of shout that you want to utter. Preserve me. Deliver me. Rescue me. Okay, this is an encouraging psalm for you, and it's an encouraging psalm because I think what this psalm teaches us, bottom line, is it comes to us and it says, you know all those things that come to you in life that you're so quick and I'm so quick, we're all so quick to take out our little Sharpie pens and we get out our little snack of labels and the label is bad. Oh, that's bad. Oh, that's bad. Oh, that's bad. That's, you know, we peel them off. We start sticking them on all kinds of things, don't we? I think this psalm comes to us and says, listen, all these things that you and I are so quick to label as bad are actually not bad if they drive us to God and to publicly stake our fate on God. To publicly say, you know what, in the midst of this distress, in the midst of this despair, in the midst of this circumstance, and honestly, I would really like to be delivered from God. You are my God and I am going to trust you. And I will trust you to deliver me and deliver me how you want to do it and when you want to do it, to do it in this life, to do it in the next life. For we serve a God who is a God of resurrection and death does not prevent him from fulfilling his promises and bringing his deliverance to us. He's not limited like we are. Nevertheless, Lord, I will trust you. And to do that before the people in our family, before the people that we work with, people we go to school with, before a watching world that needs to see us trust in something different someone different than they do. So as you heard, Psalm 16 begins with this, a miktam of David. And then David says this, and here's the shout. He says, preserve me, O God. But now notice what he says next. He says, for in money, I take refuge. That's not it, is it? Well, let's play it out a little further. In power, I take refuge. Nope. Influence? No. 
Okay, how about this one? In my strategic brilliance and abilities, I take refuge. No, okay, then in the strategic brilliance and abilities of my incredible team, I take refuge. No, it's just no, it's no, it's no, it's no. And David was a king. He had all of those things in spades. If ever there was a guy who could trust in those things or at least be deceived into thinking so, it was him. And yet here's the gift of whatever this crisis is, and we don't know what it is. We just know ours. So here's the gift. It has utterly disabused him of any hope, of any thought, that any of those things, anything short of God himself, can deliver him. That's a gift. It has driven him to God, and it has driven him publicly to God because he writes this down, and then he publishes it. And here again, he says publicly, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And so what this means, bottom line, is that this crisis, whatever it is that has caused him to shout, because it's driven him to God and to do so publicly, to stake his fate on him, is actually good, despite the label that David has no doubt placed on it. And that sounds like a wonderful axiom, a a great principle, an amazing truth, doesn't it? Until you're the one who needs to hear it. It's easy to say, oh, brother, you know, the Lord is working this out for your good. Yeah, you know what? You might want to back up, you know, because I'm just not real excited about hearing that right now. It's great until you're the one who needs it. Why is that? I think it's because you and I are working off a different dictionary than the Lord. And when we turn to our definition of good, it's very different than the one he has in his. And here's when you discover that. It's not when everything's going well. It's when everything is not going well. When life walks up and punches you in the face for the first time, maybe, or maybe for the thousandth and first time, you discover, oh, good grief, good to me actually equals comfort, or it actually equals health, or it actually equals prosperity, or it actually equals pleasure, or it actually equals ease, or it actually equals fill in the blank. It equals one of these things. And I think it's important perhaps to note that God's not opposed to any of those things and that when we enjoy them or any other good thing, we enjoy them specifically because our good Father has given them to us. But I think it's even more important perhaps to note that in God's definition, in His dictionary, tragedy can actually be good. Marriage problems can actually be good. Wayward children can actually be good. Problems with our health can actually be good. Financial problems can actually be good. How? They, they break us. They disabuse us of the idols, of the things that we will for sure, because all of us are worshipers of something, fall down in worship and in trust in, and, and look to for our identity. I'm valuable because of this, because I've done this, because I've gained this, because I've accumulated this, or because people think well of me in this particular area, or because of the love of this person, or of that person, or because of my kids, and they're amazing, and I'm... It breaks us of these things. And the other thing that it does is it forces us to make hard value choices that really betray what we trust in and who we trust in. Honey, you know what? We can either tithe this year or we can take this particular vacation this year, but it's kind of a tight year and we can't do both, so we have to choose. Uh Uh-oh. We can either help the poor this year, that is to say people who have virtually nothing, or we can get new cars this year, but it's kind of a tight year and we can't do both. That's when we want to get out the Sharpie. And we label the situation bad. And God's saying, is that bad? Or is that good? If it drives you to me, 
If it causes you before your kids or your spouse or your parents or your friends or the people you work with to say, hey, you know what, I have a God and he resides in heaven and in my heart. He's appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. He's given his all for me. And I worship him and I trust him and I serve him. So from the midst of his distress, David shouts out, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And then he says this, and hear his confession. He makes this publicly. He says, You, O God, are my Lord. Not my money, not my health, not my kids, not my marriage, not my power, not my position, not my prestige, not the fact that I'm king, not anything else. Just you. And here is what this crisis has taught him. It's taught him this next statement. I have no good thing apart from from you. And you say, well, what does that mean? It means that you can have everything that this world has to offer and apart from God have absolutely nothing. You discover that in the end when everything that you have in this world is gone. It's temporary. It's transient. It doesn't keep its promises. It's not there when you really need it. Or you can have nothing that this world has to offer and have God and have everything. And if you've been to Haiti with us, You've seen people who understand that because what happens is you go to Haiti and you work alongside of these people and honestly, inside you're going, holy cow, these guys have absolutely nothing. Wait, wait, you live here? You, you eat this? You, this, is, this is your medical care system, which there isn't one? that Nothing. And then you go to church with them and you're envious because they have something in far greater measure even than we do, or so it seems at least. Doesn't it? And that doesn't mean we shouldn't work to alleviate their poverty. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that God, who is a God of resurrection, has the capacity to take even the deep sufferings and death that come from that kind of poverty and to redeem them by doing what? Taking this people and driving them to Him and stripping them of everything else such that they have to publicly stake their fate on him and he does the same thing for us just in different ways it's the design and point and so david says you O god are my god and even though i am a king and i have lots of good things here's what this crisis has taught me it's taught me that in reality i have no good thing apart from you and then david continues his confession by saying as for the saints in the land as for the other christians to use our vernacular today as for the other people in this land who believe in you and who trust in you and who follow you the way that i do david says they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight and so now what is he saying he's saying look lord not only has this crisis driven me to you it's driven me to your people it's pulled me out of my isolation it has so broken me that i've had to come forward and admit to somebody at least that I need help. That I have issues. That I'm not perfect. In fact, far from it. And if it does that, then we need to change the label. Because it's not bad. It's good. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight, David says. And then he compares God's people to those who do not know the Lord when he says, but the sorrows of those who run after another God shall do what they shall multiply, the idea being continuously as they move through this life and then on into the eternity that lies before all of us. And here's why, because they've abandoned the source of every good thing in turning their back on the Lord. Their drink offerings of blood, it's the language of worship and of death. 
Their worship of death, I will not engage in. Their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out. I won't worship that God or that way and even take their names upon my lips. No, I'm not going to do that either. And here's why. Because the Lord, he says, is my chosen portion. He's my treasure. He's the choice that I have made and he is the choicest of choices. He is my chosen portion and my cup, which represents joy. And I love that he uses the possessive pronoun, my, twice, because he's coming to us and saying, listen, not only do you belong to the Lord, that's kind of easy at least to do the math on. You know, he's my creator, he's my sustainer, he's my redeemer, he's purchased me with the blood of Jesus, I belong to him. I may not be excited about that, I should be. But he's saying, here's the other part of the deal. He belongs to you. He's your possession. He's gifted himself to you in the person of Jesus. And I think that our tendency in life, when we're going through a season of, oh man, I need to be delivered, is to focus entirely upon what we've, what we've lost or what we're losing, as opposed to who and what we have. And as opposed to the fact that it's in those seasons of life that we grow closest to him, isn't it? Like when everything's rolling, man, you know, it's like, hey, Lord, glad you're there, you know? I'll check in with you next week. But when you're stripped of everything but Him and driven by that to Him, there you find Him and appreciate the possession of Him. That's the idea. And so David confesses in verse 5, he says, The Lord is my chosen portion, my treasure, and my joy. He is my cup. And then speaking to the Lord... He says, you hold my lot. And the lot in David's day was kind of comparable to a pair of dice for us today, except it was used differently, okay? It was used to discern the will of God or in some cases of the gods. And so, you know, you know do you want me to marry this particular person? If so, you know, let me roll snake eyes or something. Not snake eyes, maybe double threes, you know, like Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Something like that. And I know that I've just trivialized it. I've just trivialized it. I'm sure it was a more sophisticated thing than that. And there are instances in the Bible, incidentally, where the Lord honors the throwing of the lot. He reveals his will that particular way. But what David is saying here is, look, I'm in a season of distress. I'm in a season of despair. I'm going to shout a not joy, but uh uh-oh, right now. And what I need is to be delivered. And I'm calling out for that. Preserve my very life, he's saying. And yet what I, David, need to remember, and what we need to remember too, is that my lot, my fate, my life is dead center in the middle of his hand. And he is determining every aspect of it. And because he is good, what then is the necessary conclusion? It is that this season of I'm not shouting for joy but for preservation is good too. It is good. But here's the problem. We can't see that in the moment. And that's all we can see is the moment. We can see all the moments that lie behind. We can't see any of the moments that lie ahead. I mean, we can predict them, but we're not even promised them. We're kind of in the present, called to trust that somehow this is going to make sense. And David, in a sense, says that in the next verse. It's like he is taken up, in a sense, like, you know, like in a helicopter or something above his life, the whole of his life, the completed, finished work of his life. And he's enabled for a moment to see it like you would survey a piece of land from a helicopter. And he looks at the whole of it, and he says that the lines, meaning the measuring lines by which his life, by which our lives, 
that at times include these seasons, these moments of distress and despair, okay, are measured out like you would a large plot of land. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, he says, as I see it in its totality, as opposed to that singular moment of good grief, I need help. What I realize is that my life is beautiful. Lord, you've painted a picture, and that is my life. And there are dark colors in beautiful pictures. When you look at the picture in its totality, you realize that the dark colors have added to its beauty, not subtracted. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, he says, I have a beautiful inheritance. And so David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. The idea being from his word. And then he says something that really struck me. He says, in the night also, my heart instructs me. And clearly what he's saying there is, I have the word of God and I, David, meditate on the word of God day and night. And from the word of God that I meditate on day and night, I am instructed in God's counsel for my life, his guidance, his wisdom for living, all of these different things. And so in the night, as I do that, my heart instructs me. I understand that's what he's saying. But I was still struck by what he is struck by at night what he's meditating on, what he's focused on, what he's overwhelmed with. Because, you know, some nights at least I'm just overwhelmed. So David is overwhelmed with the Lord. And he tells us in Psalm 4, and we saw that months ago now, that even in the midst of of guys hunting him down for his life, he lays down and sleeps quietly at night. I, I take a melatonin every night. I don't know about you guys. I... I mean, that's not a lie. Like, I really do. Five milligrams, I recommend it. It's helpful. <laughs> and even then, sometimes I toss and turn. I woke up at 425 this morning. I have no idea why. Then I kind of toss and turn from there. What is the deal? Like, most people would classify that as insomnia. But if the insomnia is due to worry, as opposed to some other cause, and there are many causes then the Bible would classify that as sin. Worry is sin. It's, it's a form of, of practical atheism in, in which you know, we, we profess on the one hand that God has it all figured out and he's working it out all together for our good and then deny it with our worry. Or in which we say, you know what, God really does have it all figured out and he actually is working it out all for our good. But here's what I doubt. I doubt that the good that he's going to produce from it is going to be actually enough to justify, at least to me, all that I'm having now to go through to gain it, to get there. It's like, Lord, just keep the good and end this. I don't trust the good's going to be good enough. That's a faith problem. That's a real issue. And David is calling us to something better. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel and in the night also, while you, Tom, at least, are sometimes freaking out or tossing and turning anyway, my heart instructs me in his ways and in in his character and the fact that he is good. I have set the Lord, he says, always before me. Not occasionally. Not in seasons of despair, but, you know, then I'll see you again the next time one of those comes along. But he, I have set the Lord always before me because God is at my right hand. David says, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, he says, my heart, even in the midst of peril and uncertainty, is glad. And my whole body, my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure in God's hands. And then he says something 
It's very curious. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is to say, to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. And I say that's curious because I've been to his tomb. It's in the city of Jerusalem. So who is that referring to? He closes with this. He says, You will make known to me the path of life, and in your, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what's so encouraging about this? Like if you're in a season of, I'm not shouting for joy, but I'm shouting for preserve me today, and then tomorrow I'm going to pray that same prayer, and then we'll get through the next day, and we'll take it from there. What do you leave here with that's actually encouraging? Well, I think you leave here knowing that, you know, maybe you've given the wrong label to this thing and open to the idea that that's a real possibility. That the thing that you've labeled bad can, in fact, be turned to good when you turn it over to the Lord and you let this thing drive you to Him or maybe just back to Him and you publicly stake your fate on Him. I rise and fall with Him. I live and die with Him. I, I go through my ups and downs with Him. My strength... My wisdom, my all belongs to him and comes from him. He is my God and he will deliver me in this life or in the next. I have my preferences, but I trust that whatever he does is good. It's amazing. And here's why you can do this. And in case you missed it, I just made a little list. But I'd encourage you this afternoon to go back yourself through this psalm and go, why can I do this? You can do this because God alone can preserve you and He alone is your refuge. He alone is not transient, but permanent and all-powerful and all-wise and all-knowing and all-loving. And through Christ, He is your Lord. And you have no good thing apart from Him, whether you realize that or not. But in Him, you have every good thing. For He is your portion. He is your treasure. He is your cup. He is your joy. And not only does He possess you, that's the easy part, you possess Him. <laughs> he belongs to you. That's His gift. And as uncertain as your life looks right now, in truth, the fate of your life is dead center in the middle of, your, of His hand. And the life that He has marked out for you, though you can't maybe see that in this moment, when you see it in its totality, it will be beautiful. His counsel is life and it leads you to peace and to rest and even to sleep for He is your guide and strength and in Him alone you shall not be shaken for not even death can deny you the joy of His presence, the fulfillment of His promises and the eternal pleasures found therein. And the reason for that is because of the one to whom this psalm ultimately refers and that's Jesus. Son of God and Son of Man come into the world to rescue those who have taken their lives and taken them away from the one that they were meant to be lived for. For he is the one who lived that perfect life and then suffered and died for all of our failures, past, present, and future. But his body did not see corruption. He was not abandoned to the grave. He's the greater son of David, the greater David himself, if you will. And he rose from the dead on the third day to offer God to you. It's awesome. So two questions. I'm done. What bad thing, we'll put it in quotes, bad thing are you facing in life right now? And what is it driving you towards or to do? Like, is it driving you towards God or is it driving you away from God? Is it driving you out of isolation or are you letting it drive you 
into isolation because it's intended to drive you to Him and it's intended to have you publicly stake your fate on Him before the people in your world. Okay? And when it does that, then it's good. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good seasons in our lives, those that we pull out our Sharpie pens and label as good. And we so enjoy them, and we so long for them, and we appreciate them, though probably not as much as we should, actually. But Lord, we thank you and pray that you would give us the faith by which to thank you for the hard times too, for the difficult seasons and days, for the moments when it does not make sense. For Lord, we belong to the God for whom it all makes sense. And bottom line, we can trust you. So I pray that you would take us and drive us through the difficult things, or just in general, to you, Lord. That you would redeem them by bringing us back to you or to you initially. That we might stake our fate on you and on the work of Jesus on our behalf. We thank you for the one who endured hell that we might have heaven and death that we might have eternal and everlasting life. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.